together into the word of the Lord. Lord, I thank you. I thank you even now for the Holy Spirit. What a presence here tonight. But Lord, I thank you for your precious Holy Spirit moving mightily upon everybody that's going to be hearing this, watching this in any way. Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit moving upon us to give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives. Lord, I thank you for a fresh anointing. I thank you, Lord, for speaking through me. Everything needs to be spoken. Your uh, living seeds of truth sown out into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Lord, we thank you for hearing us in the prayers over these sermons. Lord, we submit it unto you. We, we resist the devil. Anything that would try to hinder, we commit to be bound and go now in Jesus' name. But I thank you, Lord, for the winds of your spirit carrying this everywhere it needs to go. And your word will not return void, but will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. So a few things. I, I, last week I talked about the Welsh revival. I kind of have to continue with that because it's all one big revival. So these revivals, as I talked about last week, there has been an increase in earthquakes. And I looked this up actually in a, a secular thing with the government that earthquakes have been increasing in both frequency and power over the last couple or last hundred years or so. They've been uh, so much more. In fact, I've seen in the study that there's even places that are experiencing earthquakes that have never had them before. So it's a very interesting thing because Jesus said that earthquakes would be a sign of his coming. There'd be an increase of them. And it's happening in secular sciences bearing that out. And so we're seeing that, and I believe that it is somehow connected because the reason I say that is because when God came down on Mount Sinai, the earth shook under his power. And that's what we're looking at here where God is coming down. He said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And in the 1700s, 1800s, it was about every 50 years. But once we got into the 20th century, it seemed to increase in power and frequency, just like the earthquakes have. We see that in the early 1900s, and then it kind of continued on through people. And then you see in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, there was a tremendous move with healing. And then it, it again, it kind of continued on, and then it got very close together. You see the revival of the 40s and 50s, then you see the revival of 60s and 70s, and then the 80s and then the 90s. You see what I'm saying? It's kind of compact. And so we're seeing an increase in power and frequency, and the revival seemed to be deepening and increasing. And so it's just like what I've seen with the earthquake. So that's really interesting. And also, I'm going to talk a little bit about a couple things I didn't last week. So... This was one big, huge tsunami wave that hit Wales. It hit Europe and Scandinavia. It affected us here in America big time. And then from Azusa, went all over the world. So this, this was a global thing. And this was right around 1902 and 3 is really when the first rumbling started happening. And then 1904 and 5 was when it really exploded in Wales. And then it jumped over to Azusa in 1906. And so this is the revival I'm, I'm talking about. It was a tremendous move of God. And a couple of common denominators in this revival that I didn't get into last week was this. In Wales, it had been at a spiritual all-time low. Just like every other revival, Wales was in a spiritually dark place. And there was people that began to pray that had a burden. There was a man, a pastor, by the last name was Jenkins, and he began to have such a burden for revival. In particular, he had a real heart for the younger generation. And he was seeing everything going wayward and people getting out of church, away from God. Society, was, it was getting dark. And so he was gathering people together to really intercede for a move of God. Again, small groups of people praying. And also, there was itinerant ministers like um, uh, Seth Joshua, and I talked about W.B. Meyer, and there were others that their names escaped me, but they had powerful ministries as they traveled and spoke places. It, there was a rumbling. This was going on in the early 1900s, and really, you could, you could, as you read about this, you can see that 1902 and 3 was just, I mean, a beginning of a, of a major move. 
There was a stirring. There was a hunger. This was also the time frame that God began to really move in Evan Roberts' life personally in him. But, and also, they, him and some of his friends were praying for revival. That's when God began to speak to him. So the early 1900s, and again, the common denominator, let me emphasize this because it's been so far in every revival, you see that society got to a really dark place where God's people got concerned and began to pray. And almost every time you see that there were small groups of people gathered that were really praying. And it was because of their prayers, God responded and revival came. So I believe, and just like Jenkins, what was he praying? I'm telling you primarily from what I've read, he had a heart for the younger generation. Isn't it interesting? As he was praying, God began to move in the life of a very young man by the name of Evan Roberts. You see? So the God began to move, and it was very interesting that, that the revival in Wales was marked by the young people that were being touched. In Mariah Chapel, whenever Evan Roberts came back and spoke at his home church, a lot of people, you know, here's this young guy going to talk. A lot of people went home, but the younger generation stuck around to hear what he had to say, and the Holy Spirit began to move. So I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures, and then just talk about a few things. So John 21, 6. Jesus said to them, children, you have fish, you have no fish, have you? Now, they had been fishing all night, remember? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the other side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were unable to haul it in because there were so many fish. So when the Lord shows up, here's the thing. They had been professional fishermen that have done this all their lives, were fishing all night and catching nothing or very few, and Jesus shows up and tells them, just casting out the other side, that there was no way that all those fish just happened to be there. It was what? It was Jesus's word, and when he showed up and spoke, a supernatural harvest came. That's what's about to happen. Also, Micah 2.13, it says, when the breaker, this is the Amplified Classic, when the breaker, the Messiah, will go up before them, they will break through how many knows we need a breakthrough in this nation? They will break through, pass in through the gate, go through it, and their king will pass on before them, the Lord at their head. So the Lord goes before us and breaks things open. And I believe that's exactly what's about to come here in America and around the world. Uh, God has another major outpouring, in my personal opinion. I believe this will be the last great outpouring, but I also believe that it will be the most powerful. And they've been increasing in power, not just frequency, but power. And it's been a combination. There's even the revivals of the 80s, which taught us so much about faith and healing through Kenneth Hagin, taught us so much about deliverance and, and prayer and fasting through Derek Prince. And <clears throat> there was major uh, move of God in the way of, of teaching us also about deep prayer through Dr. Cho. And I believe that that had a lot to do with the 90s revivals because people kind of had that teaching in them. So there's been like a combination down through this. And also in the 90s revivals, we saw tremendous healings and miracles, tremendous deliverance. And that, was, that goes back to what the 40s and 50s, where God restored that. And not to mention the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was really restored back at Azusa. My point is, is that you see it's compounding. It's all coming together. All these past revivals, what God has done, keeps increasing. It's going to the next generation. Then God's adding to it, to the next generation being added to. And we're about to see the fullness of all of it that's going to usher in the coming of the Lord. It's the restoration of all things. So a couple things about this Welsh revival, and then I'm going to get into Azusa tonight. But Evan had been for 1902 and 3, God had been visiting him. And a lot of people, when they talk about Wells, they talk about Evan. But the truth is, this was a lot bigger than him, and he would have been the first to tell you. This revival was already, like I said, it was brooding. It was already in many ways beginning to happen through people like Meyer and, and Joshua, such Joshua, who were preaching and there were others, they were preaching for repentance. They were telling people, make sure that, that you are saved. Make sure you're getting right with God. The sin is removed. And as they spoke, there was something stirring in the atmosphere, and people were repenting. So revival was already happening. Now, Evan Roberts found himself, God had been preparing him. He finds himself at a Seth Joshua meeting, which I talked about last week. 
1904, and God, I mean, just really touched him because Seth Joshua closed the meeting by really interceding. He was praying, Lord, bend us, O Lord, bend us. And that meant to be pliable. Whatever you got to do in us, God, whatever you got to take out of us, whatever you got to put in us, whatever you got to change, help us to be pliable for that. And that somehow shot like an arrow right into the belly of Evan Roberts, and he just began to weep and tremble, crying out, God, bend me, change me. And that was the beginning, really, of what God was about to do. And through deep intercession, Evan began to seek the Lord, had a vision about wells being lifted up, the hand touching it. He knew 100,000 souls. I mean, he knew it, and he was preparing for rain. He was preparing for the revival. He was telling people, you need to get ready because revival's about to break out. So he goes back home to Mariah Chapel, his home church, asked the pastor, I feel like God's given me something to say. And so those that remained, he told him, he said, let's make sure that we're truly saved, we're right with God. Any type of a doubtful habit, what that meant was any type of a, a sin or a compromise or anything that you don't feel is necessarily right in your life, he said, make sure and repent of that because he said, God has a great revival that's about to come. And people began to respond to that because the Holy Spirit was moving there. And that was the beginning of the revival in 1904, that it just, the Holy Spirit began to break forth. The revival began to fall. And in Wales, as the Holy Spirit began to move real intensely, people were just drawn to the meetings. I mean, they would have three, 4,000 people show up at a meeting. And I mean, people were getting saved. People were repenting. The power of God was coming down. And like I talked about last week, and I don't want to get too much, too much into it, but Evan, he just, he wanted just to flow with the Holy Spirit. I mean, he would get up and he would preach, but he didn't want anything to be said or done in any way that was not 100% the Holy Spirit. And so he would sit there sometimes, and whatever God was saying, I mean, and sometimes his sermons would go for two hours, other times... He wouldn't even have much to say. Just the Holy Spirit would move in. There would be a spontaneous song. There would be a call for people to get saved, deep repentance. And so Evan had a passion, though, that God would get all of the glory. That was his heart, that God would get all of the glory. So Evan went to great lengths to make sure that man did not get any glory or credit for anything, even if people began to look to him too much, he would pull back from the ministry. He didn't want any credit for anything, and that was his passion. So please let that not escape you tonight. Like, don't be distracted from what I just said. We've got to go to great lengths to make sure that God gets all the glory. Because Evan would tell the people, if you start looking at me, he said, God will pull back from this revival. And he would pull back away from the meetings because he didn't want people looking at him. So Evan had a great passion for that, and also God put in his heart four basic tenets to keep the revival on course, and he would teach this. Number one, he would say all sin must be confessed and repented of. Number two, we've got to make sure that we completely forgive everybody from our hearts, don't hold any grudges. Number three, we must fully obey the Holy Spirit. He was really big on that. And number four, a public confession of Christ as Savior. Do not be ashamed publicly confess Christ as Savior in your life. These basic tenets set the course for the Spirit-led revival. Now, interesting, there was a Monday night meeting in the Welsh Revival that was so intense at the beginning of it, but yet even though it went late into the night, Evan felt that not necessarily everybody there had really been open and receptive to the degree they should have. He knew God was really moving, but not everybody was necessarily responding like he thought, felt that they should. And so it kind of grieved him. He left the meeting a little down about it. And the Holy Spirit was moving so powerful, though, that the meeting lasted till about 3 in the morning. Upon arriving home, though, Evan was a bit discouraged, but he was awakened in the middle of the night to hear his own mother crying out, saying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I feel like I'm dying. And so Evan knew that the Holy Spirit was moving upon her in deep repentance. So Evan had the wisdom 
to go in and talk with his mother and help her pray through repentance. This is important because a lot of people do this, okay? So please remember this. When the Holy Spirit's moving on somebody and they're convicted and they're under this deep conviction and they're weeping and they, they, they feel like this. It's like, it's like, I feel like I'm dying. I just And there's this deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's God's grace and mercy right there. What a lot of people will do is they'll get in the flesh and they'll tell that person, oh, it's okay. It's all going to be okay. Don't worry about it. You know, and they'll, they'll actually work against what the Holy Spirit's doing. They'll try to get that off of them. Don't ever do that. If the Holy Spirit is moving on somebody with conviction like this, Evan knew, man, I need to make sure that my mother knows the Lord. And so he helped her repent. He helped her get the sin out of her life and give her life to Jesus fully and make sure everything was right. And that was that marked every revival. I mean, going back to what I've read at the Awakenings and, and Second Awakening in Cambridge and the Hebrides, every revival was marked by this type of activity where the fear of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit was so intense that people would be so gripped with that. They would be weeping. They would be wailing. They would be a shriek. People would collapse. People would just lay there and just groan. I mean, just in, sometimes in a fetal position, and they were, have mercy, Lord, and they were just weeping and crying out to God. Don't hinder that. That is God's mercy in that person's life. The fact that they are able to feel that conviction and be able to be opened up unto salvation. So Evan had great wisdom in this area, and his mother really gave her life fully to the Lord that night. And that began something. That began to be what marked the Welsh Revival. The Holy Spirit would just fall, and Evan never interrupted that. He did not want it anyway. And it wasn't just him. There were other people. His friend Cindy Evans was having great revival meetings. Seth Joshua and others, Meyer and all these, they were having great meetings too. And they were doing the same thing Evan was doing. Evan was just more popular. People spoke of his meetings more. But I mean, Seth Joshua was telling people, make sure that you are truly repentant and you're right with God. And he would tell them, he would, Seth Joshua would tell people, listen, just because you feel something, that does not mean that you're necessarily saved. He said, you need to make sure that you accept the Lord and you repent and really get right with him. Just because you feel conviction. You see what I'm saying? They were helping people really, truly get right with God. And I believe because those type of ministers were in operation in that revival is why all of Wales ended up being set ablaze. They didn't work against the Holy Spirit. They didn't try to water down messages. They didn't try to make anybody feel good or anything like that. They were cooperating with the Holy Spirit, basically telling everybody, make sure that you're accepting the Lord and you're repenting of every sin in your life and you're fully getting right with him. That right there shook all of Wells. And the leadership of the revival never took any glory. I was reading about it. None of them took it to build up their ministry, their name, their fame, or anything. They pulled back and gave God all the glory. And I believe that's why it was so intense. God can work with that, can't he? So God also is really interesting in the height of the revival. I mean, this thing had been going now for, for a little while, but it exploded pretty quick. Edwin Orr wrote about just in a few months, there was something like uh, thirty to 50,000 people saved. And then within six months, there was marked around 100,000 people saved, not counting the people that were already church people that were really, truly getting things right. That didn't even count them. This shook the nation of Wales. See, I'll give you an example. In Wales, this is in other revivals as well, and I've read this to you. But, you know, you could be going down the road, and all of a sudden you would see somebody over here like in a fetal position groaning in a ditch, and you'd go up to them, and they were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, forgive me, have mercy. I mean, it was things like the Holy Spirit just fell. I mean, people were, and, and I don't want to get out of this revival too much, but in Hebrides, my goodness, it was so amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to getting to that revival too. But people come under conviction. But in the height of this revival, God pulled Evan away to seek him for a week. No meetings, nothing. That took faith. Because I'm sure he thought, well, I don't want to hinder anything. 
You know, because I mean, night after night, they were seeing people get saved. And most people wouldn't have done this, but it was a time of seeking the Lord that gave him some insight. And God spoke to Evan in this week of silence where he sought the Lord. Number one, do what God commands. Remember Moses striking the rock. Evan, number one, God told him, do what you're told. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Do what you're told. And the example was like Moses disobeyed and struck the rock instead of speaking to it. The second thing God told Evan was take everything to prayer. Remember Joshua with the Gibeonites. Y'all remember that? Where, where Joshua was deceived. The Canaanite tribe of Gibeon came to him with old moldy bread and stuff and said we're from far away. They made a covenant. And then they were stuck. They were tricked. If Joshua had prayed about it, they wouldn't have got in that situation. And God spoke to Evan and said, make sure that you take everything to prayer. Number three, God told him to fully obey the Holy Spirit no matter what. And number four, be careful to give God all the glory. This would keep the revival from error. And so this, this was such a powerful move. Now, one problem I would say that I feel after studying this that Evan had was this. Evan had a personal area in his life where I think that he had a fear, and this right here I think was the problem. He had a fear that he was going to miss God. I'll give you an example. I'll try to describe it the best I can. He would get up to minister and feel like, man, I've got to make sure everything I say is perfect. It's only the Holy Spirit. There's nothing else. I, I, I'm so in the way here. I don't want anything to be off. And there was just this unhealthy fear of being off, missing it, messing something up that basically in his life led him to having nervous breakdowns and ultimately opened the door to depression and a Jezebel spirit. That's not a healthy way to be. So how do we be? That God, by his mercy, we say, Lord, we're imperfect vessels. We're going to go out here and do our best, but we're going to yield, and we're going to have, get this ready, faith that God is going to speak through me. Everything he once said and nothing else, that God's in control, and I have faith in him to keep me and to do that. Because even if you felt like you said something that maybe was this way, God the Holy Spirit is merciful and will still turn it the way he wants it to go. It requires faith to be used of God, not fear in trying to control things. Did everybody catch that? Because a religious spirit torments people with fear and weird feelings of, I don't know if I'm measuring up. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I can. And let me tell you, unfortunately, that was deadly for Evan Roberts. It sidelined him the rest of his life. So a restoration movement. Now, let me just give you a few more things, and we're going to talk a little bit about a Susan. We're going to pray. But out of the Welsh revival, the Holy Spirit, this is really interesting now. Out of the Welsh revival, the Holy Spirit began to fall in England, the rest of Europe. And even though the Welsh revival basically waned, it, it was going in one form in 1902 and three. It exploded in 1904 and reached its crescendo in 1905. And 1905 is when all of the society was affected by the revival, okay? But it died off because of Evan Roberts, and it jumped over to Azusa. But after the Welsh revival began to wane, there was brothers by the name of Stephen and George Jeffries that had an incredibly powerful ministry in England that affected England all the way up until World War I. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Jeffrey brothers, especially George Jeffries. They were seeing such powerful healings and miracles. They started a, a build, had a building and started a ministry there, a church called Kensington Temple. Now, there was a man many, many years later, okay, named Colin Dye, that I, don't, I think it was maybe in the 80s that he, he went back in, they bought the building. After they procured the building, they began to go in to renovate it. And again, I don't remember the exact year that they did this, but it, it had basically laid there unused. And so they go in to renovate the building and they begin to dig out the basement. Guess what all they're pulling out there? All these old crutches 
and stretchers and braces and all these things that were left behind because people came, got healed, and left without them. I mean, they pulled out tons of them. So God really used the Jeffrey brothers, and their ministry continued on till World War I. Was, they were affected by that. And let me tell you this, too. Let me give you a couple things. Have you ever thought about this, that the very places where God has moved so mightily, whenever you think of certain areas in our nation that are problematic, you can't help but think about Chicago. You can't help but think about Los Angeles. You can't help but think about New York. There's other places. But did you know that those very places were places of great revival in times past? I mean, Azusa Street was in L.A. Uh, Finney was in Rochester, New York. And, and Chicago had dowry there with the Zion City. And I mean, it was a powerful move of God there. And so what Satan does is these places where God has visited so powerful, if the devil can, he wants to come in behind that move of God and set something up there to make sure God never does it again. He's trying to stop up those wells of revival. And let me give you something else really interesting. I'm going somewhere with this. There, you can study this out for yourself, but there's families. I know personally a guy who's a descendant, Charles Parham, has, the, has his last name. And he was a friend of mine back years ago, and, and he talked a little bit about their, their family. And, and God really moved in that family through the revival of Topeka, Kansas, and it, it ended up you know, affecting Seymour, etc. But he had had a lot, of, a lot of problems. He had had struggles with backsliding, oppression. He just had a lot of spiritual problems. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When God really moves in a family bloodline real powerful like that, don't be surprised if they don't maintain the move of God that the devil doesn't try to oppress that family to make sure it never happens again. Satan will even target... It's interesting because names mean something. You remember how Jesus changed people's names at times? You know, Simon's name, Cephas, was like a flaky or unstable. And the Lord said, no, no, I'm changing your name to Peter meant rock stability. Names mean something. Isn't it interesting, Oral Roberts, who's ever heard of somebody named Oral? Well, God, God, you know, God's hand was in that. His mother said, I'm going to name this guy Oral. Not knowing that later on he, he would be a voice to a generation. But how did Satan attack Oral Roberts? Tuberculosis tried to shut down his lungs, his ability to speak, you see. God healed him. So Satan targets names too. If your name... If it's, you know, and if your name, if you feel like that God has shown you that maybe your name is not really what it needs to be, there's several places in the Bible where God changed somebody's name. But names mean something. But sometimes if somebody has a name that's connected to their destiny, the devil will try to attack that very area. So I'm just showing you some things. Now, let me show you this too. There can be generational blessings for sure. But did you know it's not limited to biology? Did you know that God has spiritual lines of inheritance? Now, please hear me because this is important. There's actually spiritual lines of inheritance that have nothing to do with DNA. It's a spiritual DNA, but not a physical DNA. I give you, I'm going to give you some examples to show you what I mean. There was obviously something that traveled from Mariah Woodworth Eder to Amy Simple McPherson to Catherine Kuhlman, and then ended up on Benny Hinn. It's undeniable. And I could go through several other examples of this. Smith Wigglesworth, Lester Sumrall, to Rod Parsley. There was another one that, that really stuck out to me, a story about George Jeffries. His, his ministry was so powerful, tremendous healings. God was really moving, but when World War I hit, it really affected things. And... Reinhard Bonnke, how many has ever heard of Reinhardt? Reinhardt went to Bible school. He, he's in England. He's walking around, and he finds himself, it's a true story. It's really neat. He finds himself just kind of walking around the streets of London, just kind of praying, just doing his thing. And as he's walking along, this had to be divine providence here. He stumbles upon a mailbox that says George Jeffries. And he thought, well, could this be the guy? 
is I read the book on George Jeffries, and this was actually in the biography that the guy wrote. And Reinhardt said, could this be the guy, you know? And so he goes up, knocks on the door, and a lady answers who ends up being like a maid or like somebody that was kind of a healthcare worker there. And she said, yes, in fact, this is George Jeffries, but he's not in good health and he can't see. And as she was about to say that he couldn't see him, George Jeffries yells from the back of the house, let him in. So Reinhardt comes in. And George Jeffries, an old man now, comes walking out and prays with Reinhardt. The power of God hits him. They both, if I remember the story right, they both fell out under the power. And there was some kind of a mantle that passed from Jeffries to Reinhardt. And look at what God did with that mantle. Wow. So there's spiritual lines of inheritance that there's some kind of a mantling, some kind of a special anointing that will go from one ministry to the next ministry, to the next ministry, and travel down. But after the Welsh revival began to wane, God was still moving. In the early 1900s, 19, all the way up in the 1920s, I mean, you see not only the Jeffrey brothers, but you saw um, William Booth's Salvation Army, Smith Wigglesworth's ministry. There was also here in America, even after Azusa Street began to wane some, God was still moving really powerfully. There was, a, there was different ministries. There was a man by the name of F.F. F. Bosworth that actually was under Dowry's ministry in Zion, Illinois, that went to Azusa, got mightily touched, and he had a tremendous healing ministries, a ministry in the early 1900s. What about John G., or, yeah, John G. Lake that was at Azusa? went to Africa. Let me tell you something about a famous story with John G. Lake. In Africa, the bubonic plague was breaking out really bad. Uh, John G. Lake had an incredible healing ministry. I'm talking major, major miracles. God had given him some kind of revelation that the law of sin and death was overcome by Christ. His, Christ's name, his power, his blood. Uh, so he had this revelation and great faith about that. And as the bubonic plague was breaking out, what this would do would cause, like, people's glands would turn black, they would swell, they would burst. Uh, It was deadly, obviously. As people were dying, they had a foam on their mouth. And John G. Lake was seeing so many people healed, the scientists that were there were challenging that. They were kind of challenging his ministry of healing, okay? And so he told them this. He said, I want you to scrape some of that foam off the mouth, and I want you to put that on the palm of my hand and put my hand under a microscope and watch. True story, documented story. They put that foam on his palm. He put his palm under the microscope, and to their amazement, they watched that thing, those germs die in his hand and disappear. He came out of Azusa Street. So God was moving, and he had a powerful ministry in Africa. He ended up coming back to, like, Oregon area, started healing rooms, etc. So God was moving mightily in the early 1900s, not to mention Mariah Woodworth Eder lost her father to a heat stroke, lost a couple siblings, had a difficult time, ended up accepting the Lord as a teenager, had to work against the stigma in her generation, especially in her group of being a woman called to the ministry, you know? And she very humbly said, well, I've got to do what God's telling me to do. Tremendous, tremendous healings and miracles. This lady would minister, and people would go into trances. Just like Peter had a trance caught up in a vision. A net came down, opened up, remember? And God, it was a major uh, revelation. God was bringing Peter. But, I mean, people would just get froze. They would fall out and be under the power for a long period of time or locked. She even had people... She'd have a tent set up, be preaching, and somebody would be plowing a field and go into a trance for a couple hours, come out, they'd be saved. So she had a tremendous, God was moving mightily in, these, in the early 1900s is my point. God was restoring back the baptism in the Holy Spirit in tongues. He was restoring back the healing ministry and the gifts associated with the healing ministry. 
And I believe also in many ways beginning to restore back the deliverance ministry, but it was still in its early phase. But in the 40s and 50s, you better believe God was delivering people by the power. I mean, there would be so many people healed and delivered at those revival, that revival. But anyway, let me go back to Azusa now. I talked about wells. We talked about last week what happened. Evan kind of got off, and God began to really jump over to Azusa and touch William Seymour. And let me just read a little bit, and then, and then I'll tell you a few stories, and then we'll pray. So after the revival at Topeka, Kansas, remember I talked about Stone's Folly, that lady got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then uh, Parham was like, man, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for today. And so he ended up sick. He ended up in Houston. I'm just going to read some of this here. William Seymour, though, let me, let me just read what I have. William Seymour come out of Louisiana, wanted to learn from Parham as a spiritual father. He was willing to sit outside the classroom at a Bible school and listen in the hallway because of segregation. He was so humble. Parham had a burden for the book of Acts, biblical Christianity, because he saw the modern church of his time being powerless. How many are concerned today seeing the lack of power in many places? He earnestly sought the Lord for the baptism of the Holy Spirit during a prayer vigil, Parham, this is Parham, during a prayer vigil on New Year's Eve of 1900, he spoke in tongues and praised God. Who knew that January 1 of 1901, that that would be an event that would shape Christianity of the 20th century because as Parham was baptized in the Holy Ghost, he began to teach biblical Book of Acts Christianity, tongues are for today, Parham, I mean, William Seymour ate it up, came and brought that teaching to Los Angeles, and that right there is how Azusa Street broke out because somebody had the nerve to teach that, yes, Book of Acts Christianity is for today. Tongues are for today. Healing is for today. Now, in L.A., so let me just jump ahead now. The year is 1905, 4, 5, and 6. William Seymour moved out to L.A. Somewhere in that time frame was just, he got, listen to this, so important. As he got to L.A., and you can read over these notes. I'm kind of all over the place here. But he gets to L.A., and he's just praying. And he goes, and, and, and he comes into a church that accepts him as a pastor. But he opens his Bible, starts teaching about Acts chapter 2. They didn't want to hear it, and they ran him off. He's rejected. He ends up at a house at Bonnie Bray Street, but how many knows rejection seemed to put him right in the center of God's will? And he's there praying. There was a man that had already been praying for a while, Frank Bartleman, deep burden. He knew revival was coming to L.A. He was handing out literature about the revival in Wales. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, G. Campbell Morgan wrote the pamphlets he's handing out, the very guy that ended up saying Azusa Street was the last vomit of state. Bartleman's there in L.A. passing out literature, telling people, get ready, a great revival's coming to L.A. He's fasting and praying so much, so consumed with that, his family and friends were concerned for him. Lost a lot of weight, just seemed like he was just over-consumed with that. There was a man, though, by the name of Small, if I'm pronouncing it right, it's spelled S-M-A-L-E. So it could be Smalle, it could be Smell, however you pronounce it, but let's just say Small. But anyway, Pastor Small had this church, and he had a burden for souls, and he had built this church, and he had a burden for revival, and he began to preach, and he began to see a move of God. And many believe, and I believe this is true as well, that the Azusa Street revival kind of started in this church. This church really started having nightly meetings, and, and the power of God was coming down. But after a little while of going day and night, the church got tired of it and told him, said, we don't want any more of this. We want to go back to what we had before. And the revival died. Now, let me just say something right there. Pastor Small had a heart for revival, but he had built something that was not conducive for it. Hello? And a lot of times, if we're not careful and we're not really truly praying about everything, hearing from God, 
in doing what God says, if we're not careful, we can build something that looks successful to man, but it's not conducive for what God wants to do. He, unfortunately, that church missed God. And God had to jump over to Bonnie Bray Street to a little house where were a handful of people, blacks and whites, were gathered together. They were praying. Frank Bartleman ended up going there, meeting Seymour and praying with him. But revival fell on Bonnie Bray Street. And God began to move so powerfully there that it's true that as the Holy Spirit fell, people were collapsing under the power. People were being baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. And some of them were literally kind of falling and rolling down the hill. And they started making fun of them, calling them holy rollers. And that's where that came from. There was so, there was so many people began to gather there on Bonnie Bray Street that actually broke through the porch. And so Seymour realized, we've outgrown the house. And so he's having to figure out what to do. He ends up getting... Uh, the Azusa Street Mission, but it was an old beat-down stable that was dilapidated. It was not nice. They had to go in there and scoop out all this animal manure. They had to make benches out of old wooden crates, and they just nailed two befores to them. They drug a piano in there. It was not, it was not nice. It was just, it was making do, okay? But from that place, the power of God came, and people came from all over the world to experience the power of God. Now, let me just say a few things I, I want to talk about. You can read the notes and get the history yourself. I got them there. I, I've kind of given you some, but I want to focus on two things and pray. But Seymour's passion, Evan Roberts' passion was to, to make sure God got all the glory, and Seymour won that too. But Seymour's passion was equally important. He wanted to make sure and keep man's control off the move of God. That's one of the greatest enemies to revival. Man always wants to control it and mess it up every time. If we can just keep our hands off of it and make sure God gets all the glory, it would be amazing what the Lord could do. Seymour simply followed the Holy Spirit God told him, now there was a man, if you want to do some research on this, there's a, I'm just going to say it real quick, there's a book by Edwin Orr called The Flaming Tongue. There's also some really good writings out there that, that deal with this, but Tommy Welchel is a man that wrote, he wrote a book called Something to This Effect. They told me their stories, but it's about the Azusa Street Revival stories. What happened was Tommy Welchel was a young man that ended up in, in California and, and he kind of stumbled into this to an old folks' home area. And there was a lot of the people from the revival at Azusa that were physically there and saw the miracles, and some of them used in the revival that, that took Tommy under their wing as a very young man and began to tell him the stories and talk to him and pray over him. And they said to him, Tommy, we want to tell you these stories because we want you to tell it to the people. We're going to be dead and gone, but we want you to, to tell people about these stories. So he heard it firsthand from people that were there. And Tommy's told some amazing stories. Let me just share some things. He said that William Seymour was very humble. He was the son of a slave. He wasn't super educated. They said that he, the way he would preach, he had a kind of a funny way about him. But they said when the anointing came on him and he spoke, it seemed so supernatural and eloquent that even a child could understand it, but it was profound. They said it was beyond him. It was the anointing would make it supernaturally powerful when he would preach. And they said that Seymour would sit there and he got a little wooden box and he would put it over his head and sit there by himself until God began to speak to him what to do. And someone said, well, why did he put a box on his head? But number one, his response was, God told me to put the box on my head. But the reason why was because God told him to, that I want to exclude everything else going on around you. I want you just to have this over you and focus on me, hear what I'm saying, and then do what I'm saying. And so it was like a tallit. It was like a prayer shawl that he covered himself. But he got alone with God, and he just moved with the Lord. He was very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And as God began to move, there were such powerful stories. 
they had just this one piano in there. And there was a man, brother so-and-so, that would play it. I don't remember his name. And Seymour would tell him, let's begin to worship in the spirit. And the people that were there said that on the floor that there would be like a, like we would say maybe like a fog machine, even though they didn't have them back then. But there was a, this little haze that would be along the floor, like an ankle. And as they began to worship in tongues and, and they would sing in the spirit together, those that were there said that that cloud kind of came up around their knees and waist, and pretty soon it filled the room, and they were just kind of in a haze. You could see somebody, but it was like a smoke machine had been set off. It was a haze in there. That was the Shekinah. And they called, they called that the Shekinah glory. And they said that whenever they were worshiping in tongues like that, and the presence of God would get real intense, they said it's, there was one piano... And there was a group of people there, but they said that it sounded to them like other instruments were heard. There was more people singing than what were actually there. And they said that there was even sounds that were beyond that, like a higher pitch. Uh, it was just heavenly. They said that they, it, it was like you were in another realm or something, like heaven invaded earth. And that there were times that the glory of God was so intense and there was this happened at least twice that I know of, it might have been more, that people saw, that they'd be walking or driving or whatever, and they would see over there this fire on a building, and they really believed that the building had caught on actual physical fire. And so they called the fire department, please get over here to this area, there's a fire. Fire trucks would show up, of course there's no fire, but they could see that there was a flame on the building. How awesome would that be? How many of you think about the tabernacle of Moses with that? And they said that during the time that that fire was over the building and seen, they said that was the time that the glory increased and that the miracles would increase. Azusa Street was not only known for being, people being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, but they were known for incredible healings, major miracles. I mean, people get baptized in the Holy Spirit and one of the things they felt was a sign was if their heavenly language, their tongue, would sound like a certain dialect around the world, they would feel like I'm, maybe I'm called as a missionary to go to that part of the world. Thus, the, the revival spread literally to the entire world from Azusa. From that little place, that little house, with a handful of people in prayer, once again, a small group of people praying, revival breaks out, that ends up affecting the entire world. Did you know, have you ever thought about this, that every movement, every Pentecostal spirit-filled movement in the world can be traced back to that little Azusa Street mission? It was from there the missionaries went around the world speaking in tongues and spread the fire. Some of the tremendous miracles as the glory would get really strong there he said that there was a particular lady, there was different people that seemed to have stronger healing ministries in certain areas, but they had one, one person that said that it was so common that any, anything on skin would just fall off on the floor that wasn't supposed to be there. A tumor, whatever, would just fall, and they, they didn't know what to do with all this stuff, so they would just sweep it up, put it in the trash can, and take it out because they didn't want to stay there and stink or whatever. But they said that there were so many miracles there was one lady that seemed to have a special grace about teeth. And if somebody came in with bad teeth, she would pray for them and, and put her finger on the tooth and it would recreate. Sometimes there would be no tooth there and there would be a tooth appear creatively. Eyewitness accounts of these things. And even as Tommy Welcher was hearing this from the people, there was a lady that had a baby that was so sick that this baby had a grayish, bluish-gray skin color. The baby was at death's door, brought it, and Tommy said, you need to get sister so-and-so to pray. This was in the 60s when this happened. This was, they're telling him the stories, right? So his faith is high. This lady has a sick baby. He's like, you need to get sister so-and-so to pray. The lady holds the baby, prays for the baby, gives the baby back to the mom, says the baby will be fine. The baby still looked the same. How many knows faith? Next thing you know, over the next little while, the baby made a full recovery, was 100% like nothing ever happened. But they saw stuff like that all the time. 
There was a true story of a lady that was stage four cancer. I mean, sick. I, she was skin and bones. She was at death's door. She couldn't even walk very far without having to stop and breathe. She made her way to the revival, got there, was sitting down. The glory of God came, and it was like a cloud in there. They prayed for her. She jumps up and starts running around the place saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. Next thing you know, she leaves, comes back a little while later. They didn't even recognize her because she had put on weight and was in divine health. There wasn't a trace of cancer. Stuff like that happened all the time. One guy had her arm ripped off from a machinery accident. I mean, there was a hole there. They prayed for him, and an arm grew out supernaturally. They're all watching this. The fingers appear. The fingernails formed, and they couldn't believe it. So stuff like that was common there at Azusa. And so I could go on and on, but it was just amazing the miracles that happened. But some of the difficulties, so why, why did this wane? Because the revival at Azusa, Wells' revival reached its height, 1904, 1905. Evan kind of got sidelined in 05. The revival jumps over to Azusa. The height of the revival, 1906, 1907. Why did it get off? What happened? Well, there was a couple difficulties that they faced at Azusa. One of them was that Charles Parham came, who was a, like a spiritual father to Seymour, but Parham began to be really critical and negative about the revival. And so William Seymour told, uh, nobody knows what was said between the two of them, but it was very contentious. And Seymour basically locked him out of the revival and didn't allow him to ever come back again. He broke that control. Parham, God bless him, I'm sure that in his own way, he was trying to, to do what God told him to do and all that, but Parham was also a member of the KKK. He was very racist. I think that that had something to do with it because he probably thought to himself, how could this black man lead a revival? But how many knows God saw things a lot different than that, didn't he? And Seymour did a lot more in that revival, in my opinion, and saw a lot more than Parham ever did. But there was a couple other things. Uh, there were some in attendance that seemed to come to Azusa that were a little new agey, occult, and weird, kind of spiritist type stuff. And they had to deal with that. When you have a revival, Satan's going to try to sow some stuff in there. You're going to have to discern what's of God and what's not. You keep the revival going, but you just get rid of the stuff that's not of God. You don't shut down the whole move of God because the devil throws a few weirdos in the mix. Amen? You just deal with that stuff as you go. Another thing that was a problem for Azusa, they had a paper in circulation back then. This was the big thing. I mean, they, this was something, the mailing list. You had this huge written-out mailing list, thousands of people, and they would send out writings, the apostolic faith mission writings. And this was teachings and testimonies out of the Azusa Street Revival. And this went all over. And Steve Hill actually got a lot of these and put them in a book. I have it. And it's, it's one of these weird books that are real tall. And, and you open it, and it's the entire newsletter on, on one page. And so I've been reading through them. It's interesting because Steve would joke about this, but it's so true. He said you'd read in here things like this. All of a sudden, Brother So-and-So gave a story. Fire appeared in the right side of the building as several fell under the power. Healings and miracles broke out. He said, you're reading about back when God used to move. But as that paper was, was circulating, it was, a, it was huge because people knew the revival was still going on. People, people were coming because they're reading the testimonies, sharing the testimonies, see? But there was a lady in the church at Azusa Street that got offended because William Seymour ended up marrying somebody other than her. So she got her feelings hurt and got mad, and she had control of the list, and she took it and left. Again, we see kind of a Jezebel spirit there. Well, that really hurt the revival because people thought it was over because now they're not getting anything anymore, you see. This was back long before there was the Internet. That was the only way people would have known. 
But another thing that, that hindered the revival. See, up until that point, the Azusa Street mission was just a hub of revival. It wasn't necessarily a church. It wasn't a denomination for sure. Everybody just came. The rich and poor were on their face before God. The blacks and whites in the days of segregation were together. It was just a place that everybody came. I mean, people that had Baptist backgrounds or whatever, everybody came. And Bartleman knew he drove by one day or walked by whatever and saw on the side of the building apostolic faith mission, like a title, like a name. And Bartleman knew in his spirit that the end was near because now they're trying to name it and they're trying to make it into like a denomination or something. And he knew that, uh uh-oh. And sure enough, it began to wane after that. That's why I believe Cambridge never really ended. You see, Barton Stone saw that great move of God at Cambridge, but Barton Stone, he had a very strong conviction that everybody in the body of Christ was brothers and sisters, that God was against the denominational lines. Did y'all hear what I said? Barton Stone knew that God was against all these denominational walls that we have up. And Barton Stone even wrote, you can look this up on the internet, the last will and testament of Cambridge Revival. He, he, He had such a strong conviction about it. He got some of his leaders together. He left the Presbyterian church over it. He said, I am not going to be a denominational preacher any longer. This revival is a sovereign move of God. It will not be a denomination. It's not going to be controlled by man, and there's not going to be all these walls up of denominations. He even wrote a last will and testament, like an official document, stating that this revival would not be controlled by man. It is not of man. It will not become a denomination that it would assimilate into the greater body of Christ wherever people desire the move of God. He wrote it out, had his leadership sign it like something you would, a lawyer would write out and sign like an official thing. Unfortunately, Seymour and them kind of did the opposite. They were facing, just like every move of God, they were facing criticisms. There was competition. There was all these problems. And so they probably felt like by making a name up there and trying to exert some type of a control and bring it together, they probably felt like it was going to help things, but in actual fact, it hindered things. But nonetheless, the revival went to the ends of the earth. Now listen, if God did it once, he'll do it again. Amen? If we'll believe God, every revival that I have shown you guys so far Society was at a low place. How many see society today in a very low place? You know what? When I see that, I used to get discouraged until I really studied historic revivals. Now that I've studied the revivals, in every revival, society had gotten so dark that the body of Christ got concerned. And they began to pray, and they thought, if God doesn't show up, we're in big trouble. How many feel that way right now in America? If God doesn't show up, we're in trouble. Well, you know what? That's exactly the conditions of revivals that have been every time. And not only that, God never, I'm telling you, it is never historic revivals. I know that Brownsville was kind of an aberration, but every revival I've read you so far, it was small groups of people in prayer. And they would gather together and they would really seek the Lord earnestly and God came down in great power. I mean, at Azusa Street, it was William Seymour and maybe a dozen people. Bartleman also, but they were in deep prayer, and God came down in such a way. I just described it to you. So God is wanting to move again, but we've got to get together probably in smaller groups. Now, why are the smaller groups important? I believe there is something to that. And I'll talk about it more at the Pentecost conference in my sermons that I plan on sharing a sermon about it because the bigger the revival, I mean, the bigger the prayer meetings, the more people are there for the wrong reasons. You have people nowadays that'll be sitting there on their Facebook, don't even come. You're wasting everybody's time, including your own. Don't even show up to the prayer meeting if you're just going to sit on your phone. 
you see? That's a hindrance, actually. The smaller groups of people, you get those that are there that want to pray. There's a unity. They're coming together. They're interceding. And as they, they come together as two agreeing on earth, God answers and moves in power. But when you start making it more open and all these other people start coming, it hinders it, you see. And I think that has a lot to do with why historically it was smaller groups. All right, so let's go ahead and shut down recordings and we'll pray tonight. I feel like God's wanting to touch people in the altar tonight.